the anatomy of guilt versus the anatomy of grace. Joseph is confronted with the decision when he finally comes face to face with his brothers. Will he serve them grace? Or will he serve them a dish best served cold? Revenge. What will we serve one another when confronted with a choice? Will we look to ourselves for this answer? Or will we cast our eyes upward? Uh, this summer, we're in a series on the life of Joseph from the book of Genesis. And um, you know, Joseph, um, Joseph was just a regular guy. Okay, we understand that. In, in the story, he comes off as kind of very saintly, you know. But he's just a guy like you and me, uh, just a regular person. And uh, yet, there is a reason why he has this story in the Bible, and his story is directed by God, because God wants us to know, as we read this story, that this is a message of the gospel. Joseph is a type of Messiah, if you will. He's an archetype of the coming Christ a few centuries later. Think about it. He leaves his rightful place. He leaves his rightful home to live in a distant land where he rises to be the deliverer of not just Egypt, but the whole world during the famine. In the, in the story, it tells us that Joseph began his ministry when he was exactly 30 years old, same age when Jesus began his. There's really no other reason why Scripture would be so specific with this information if God did not want us to make the connection. Not only is Joseph an archetype of the coming Messiah, his first advent, but there are many prophetic connections to the end of days regarding Christ's second coming, which I believe we are living today. Let me give you a few. Joseph representing Christ, Jesus, and the brothers representing Israel. Well, these brothers hate their brother, Joseph, and sell him out thinking he is dead. Yet Joseph, he rises from that dead, so to speak, and becomes a man of power in this new land by supernaturally explaining Pharaoh's dream. He's now given dominion over all the life-giving food during the seven-year famine. The famine represents the coming tribulation that will ravage the earth. Did you know that a tribulation is coming? The worst days that the earth has ever seen. And the famine in Joseph's story represents that same tribulation. And here, I think, is where it gets very interesting. Before the famine occurs, something happens in Joseph's life. He gets married. Did you notice that? We read through that a few weeks ago. Joseph gets married, and he gets married to a Gentile, a Gentile bride. Did you know that the church is the Gentile bride of Christ? And the union takes place before the famine, before the tribulation. To me, it's another affirmation of a pre-tribulation removal or rapture of the bride of Christ, the church. Now, I've often said, that there are well-meaning Christians who believe in a mid-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture or no rapture at all. And it's fine if people want to have that belief if they want to be wrong. I mean, oh, okay. Some of you are looking at me like, well, I shouldn't have said that. It says in Scripture it'll be just like the days of who? Noah, Noah, the people of God got on the ark and were rescued and saved apart from the wrath of God, which is coming in the tribulation. It also says in those, in those prophetic scriptures that it'll be just like in the days of Lot. Lot, get your family out of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
they leave and the wrath of God comes. Over and over and over, we see the examples of God removing his people before his wrath is poured out. So if you still want to be mid-trib and post-trib or no rapture, I don't know what to tell you. But look what happens during the famine of tribulation. The brothers, Israel, come to Joseph, Jesus, and what do they do? They bow down before him, recognizing him for who he is. Just as the tribulation is primarily to inflict such hardship that the Jewish nation will come to Jesus as their Messiah. Romans 11.26 says all Israel will be saved. Then Isaac and his sons are brought out of their land, joined up with the family of Joseph, the Gentile bride of Christ, and they all live in this new place, this new land, this best land, the land of Goshen. Just as we, the church, the Gentile bride of Christ, will live forever in a new earth with our Jewish brothers and sisters. God wants us to see the connection because Scripture makes it virtually inescapable. Where we are in the story of Joseph, we find ourselves at a point where the brothers are feeling very guilty. And I don't know about you, but part of us, after you read this story up to this point, we're in Genesis 43. When you read to this point, you go, well, they ought to feel guilty. Those dirty rats. They sold their brother into slavery. They told their daddy was dead. They covered, up, they covered it all up by putting animal blood on Joseph's prized multicolor coat to prove to dad, look, he is dead. He knew at the time he wasn't. And many years go by, and they're still living with this historic event that produces present guilt. Anybody ever lived that way? There was a historic event that produces present guilt. The famine has come, and they went to Egypt to buy grain and encountered their long-lost brother Joseph, who has risen to power and is in charge of the sale of food. And Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And um, he sends them away with food. And not only does he send them away with food, he takes the money that they spent to buy the food and he puts it back in their sacks. And he, kept, he keeps one of the brothers, Simeon, as a way of ensuring their return. Joseph also told them, don't come back for more food unless you bring back your youngest brother, Benjamin. Benjamin is Joseph's only full-blooded brother. Same mom, same dad. All the other brothers are half-brothers. Same dad, different moms. I know it's confusing, but you get it, right? And so the brothers, they go back to Canaan until the food they bought runs out. And now they're going back to Egypt with Benjamin to purchase more food. And the brothers are scared as they make the trip. What's going to happen to us this time? They feel that all these problems that they're encountering are because they sold their brother Joseph so many years before. And you add to the story, there is this Egyptian ruler who is going to think that we're thieves. Because the money had been returned in our sacks. We didn't do it, but he will think... And they're, filthy. they're feeling very guilty. They're feeling very fearful. 
And so we pick up the story in verse 15 where they're planning their strategy when they get to Egypt. So the men took this present. This present is a donation. It's a double the money. It's their payment. And they took double the money in their hand in Benjamin. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to He said to his house steward, bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man, I would imagine, was fairly confused. (laughs) Really? These guys? But the steward, the man, did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. It's kind of like going to the principal's office, right? Something bad is going to happen. And they said, oh, it's because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we're being brought in, that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. We'll get to that later. So they came near to Joseph's house, steward, and spoke to him at the entrance. So this is the steward of the house, verse 20, and said, oh, Oh, my Lord, oh, my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, and it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks, and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of his sack. Our money is, our money in full. So we have brought it, we brought it back in our hand. We've also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. You can hear their voice, right? this This is fascinating to me. The Egyptian steward says this. The word is Hebrew. Shalom. Shalom, guys. Be at ease. He's speaking in their language. Do not be afraid. And then he says this, the Egyptian. Your God, you Hebrews, your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought their brother Simeon out to them. Then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet and he gave them their donkey's fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon for they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. Can you imagine what's running through their minds? What is this all about? One thing that we know about these brothers is that they can't get over their guilt. Guilt is that feeling that I've done something very wrong and deserve punishment. Oh, let me ask, does anybody need me to explain what guilt is? (laughs) We all kind of know what it is, right? Let me talk a little bit about the anatomy of guilt that we see in this passage. The first thing that guilt will do in your life is it brings a fear of punishment. Verse 18 says they're afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. And you you, you can remember that the whole world is coming to Egypt for food. They're the only place where food is. And and I think these guys must have thought, we can just sneak in and get in line and and pay our money and, and get our food and sneak back out. But they're spotted and ushered into the presence of the big guy. (laughs) And one thing about fear is, it always assumes the worst about the future, right? 
It's the what if. I, I know this is going to happen. I, oh, ugh. When these brothers were taken to Joseph's house, they immediately assumed the worst. He's going to ask us about the money in our sacks. He is going to accuse us of stealing. We're done. I mean, have you ever done something really wrong and wish you could go back and fix it? And maybe you've made some feeble attempts to fix it? It's kind of like this guy who wrote a letter to the IRS. It reads like this, dear, dear IRS, I haven't been able to sleep because I cheated on my taxes last year. I intentionally understated my income. Please find enclosed a check for $150. If I continue to have problems sleeping, I'll send you the rest. I don't know, I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> Another thing that guilt does is it magnifies anxiety. I mean, you can see the anxiety building up in these guys. I mean, they're probably all having ulcers by now, popping heartburn medicine if, as fast as they can, sleepless nights, thinking about how bad this is all going to get, and uh, guilt can take you down roads that see everything out of this impending doom attitude. And when you, when you know you deserve punishment and you, you feel ashamed and, and yet you haven't faced the music yet, you can make up all kinds of horrible outcomes. Shakespeare wrote in one of his plays, he says, suspicion always haunts the guilty mind. Another thing, it produces paranoia. <laughs> Verse 18, it's because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we're being brought in that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. I mean, it doesn't get any worse when your donkeys are slaves, right? This is terrible. Life is never going to be the same. When a person is gripped by guilt, they just think irrationally. They assume everyone's out to get them. They process life through this Negative, shame-ridden lens. I think the worst thing about guilt is this. It blinds us to grace. I mean, the brothers saw the money in their sack. Did they see that as, as somebody being kind to them? They immediately thought what? We're getting set up. How we filter things determines the conclusions that we draw. Our worldview is so critically important. If you filter life through your guilt or your shame or your sin, you will be suspicious of every kindness ever shown to you. They must want something. Because both they and I know I don't deserve this. Sometimes we even blame God of that. Why are you being so good to me? What's getting ready to happen? I imagine a guilty sinner hearing the gospel of God's grace. They've come into this auditorium today. They don't know the Lord Jesus, and they hear this offer of grace, and they look at the shame in their life. They look at the sin. They look at the guilt, and uh, 
They hear about God sending his son Jesus to pay for their sins on a cross so that they could exchange their guilt, all of that stuff, for his grace, his forgiveness. And so many people hear that and they they filter it through their guilt lens and uh, they just draw the conclusion, well, it's just not possible, not for me. Not only that, it's just not right. Look at what I've done. It's not right for me to accept this. I've messed it up. I need to fix it. Or maybe I've messed it up so bad I'm just broken, unredeemable. I'm guilty and I deserve what I get. Can I tell you this in love? Don't do that. Don't do that. Grace is real, and grace is true. You can take off your guilt blinders and see the offer of the grace of Jesus. Speaking of grace, the story continues. You have to know as we read this passage, the brothers don't know the Egyptian ruler is actually their brother that they mistreated and sold into slavery. Verse 26, when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. Then he asked them about their welfare and said, is your old father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. Again, they bowed down in homage. As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother, Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, May God be gracious to you, my son. Notice he didn't wait for an answer. He knew who Benjamin was. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he controlled himself and said, Serve the meal. So they served him by himself, and, then, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. Hmm. I can just see the three different areas. Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth, 11 of them. They had never spoken of their birth order. But there they are, they're assigned seats, oldest to youngest. And the men looked at one another in astonishment. I guess they did. He took portions to them from his own table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, so they feasted and drank freely with him. So we we looked at the anatomy of guilt. I think we ought to look at the anatomy of grace. This is a paragraph of grace. These, These brothers had done a terrible thing to their brother Joseph. But here's the thing. Grace is never fair. Amen? Uh, Well, let me ask you this. Aren't you glad grace is never fair? Aren't you glad you're not getting what you fairly deserve? (laughs) 
in our human minds, we would naturally conclude that the fair thing was for these brothers to pay for their wrong. In their minds, they know the right thing would be for God to finally make them take the punishment for their wicked deeds. And it's this sense of fairness that keeps so many people away from God today. They just can't believe it's true. Nobody does that. Nobody just lets people off the hook. Oh, think of this. Have you ever said this? Well, no. You've never said this because this is not a good thing to say. All right? I'll give them grace when they come and ask for forgiveness and are willing to make amends for what they've done. Now, first of all, that is an impossible statement. Because if people have to do something to get grace, it's by definition not grace. (laughs) That's the whole thing about it. Another thing about grace, it's always undeserved. Again, if you deserve it, it's not grace. I mean, can you imagine the brothers sitting at this feast? They'd come with all these expectations of doom, and we're going to get, I don't know if we're going to survive this. He's going to kill us. And now they've arrived in Egypt, and where are they sitting? At this lavish spread of food. And they're in the company of the head guy. You know, I bet, as well as we know these guys by now, I bet they're still thinking, they're just fattening us up for the kill. Right? Knowing the backstory, I think, tells us a lot. These were the wicked brothers who sold Joseph and lied about it to dad. These brothers were the guilty, the perpetrators of the crime. Joseph, the one who had been wronged and now had the power to make them pay, instead shows them grace, favor. He seats them at the banquet table as the honored guests. See, the brothers don't know it yet, but in his heart, Joseph has already forgiven them completely. He understands why God sent him to Egypt. And he loves his brothers. So there they feasted together. The forgiven criminals. And the righteous one. If you're a believer in Christ today, a similar event is in your future. And I think soon. In fact, this meal is, in Genesis, is a prophetic picture of a coming meal we will share with the bridegroom of the Lamb of God, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I I, I sometimes just imagine the scene. We've been given assigned seats. I imagine my seat, your seat, is all about you. I bet there's things there that remind you of the grace that has been given to you. And you're sitting there at that feast knowing your criminal history. Yet completely forgiven. Completely welcome. Because of what Jesus did for you. 
You're clean. You're free. And you're welcome at the table. Joseph had assigned them their seats, oldest to the youngest, and it just says the brothers were astonished. How could anybody get it exactly right? Joseph is giving them clues about his identity. He's wanting them to figure this out. That's just like grace. This is what I think. Grace coaxes us to believe. Come on, it's true. It's real. It can happen for you. Yes, you can be completely forgiven. Yes, you can have the shame completely wiped out. Come on. It's true. I like what Henry Morris says. Author Henry Morris writes about this scene. He says, after they were assigned to seats at the table... The 11 brothers noted a remarkable thing. They had been seated in order of age, from the eldest through the youngest. If this were a mere coincidence, it was indeed marvelous. One can easily show that there are no less than 39 million different orders in which 11 individuals could be seated. I did the math on that. I checked his math. You just go 11 times 10 times 9 times 8 times 7 times 6. You see what number you get. 39 million. And he goes on. Evidently, this man knew a great deal more about their family than they had realized. Yeah? Or else he had some kind of supernatural power. They had no answer and could only wonder about it. He wants them to believe. He wants them to see... I'm your brother. I'm showing you grace. Another thing about grace is lavishly abundant. In verse 34, it says that Joseph took portions from his table and gave them to his brothers. Now, do you think his brothers already had food? Yeah, of course they did. They already had food. I don't know if Joseph's food was different. I don't think it probably was different. Maybe it was. I don't know. But anyway, he takes food from his table and he pours on more food on their table, and then poor Benjamin. I mean, here, Benjamin, two, three, four, five, more than the rest of you guys. I imagine, I imagine Benjamin saying, enough already. I can't eat near that much. Stop, stop. This is more grace than I could ever contain or hold. And the master keeps pouring it and giving it. Oh, remember, we object, I sold you out. I turned my back on you. I betrayed you. And he just says, here, here, have another drumstick, here. We object. It's just not right, this thing called grace. We should pay for our sins. It's only fair. It's not the way things work here in this world. And he says, that's the point. Exactly. Here's more grace. The 
And lastly, grace is an expression of love. Grace loves deeply. And I think about Joseph seeing his brother, Benjamin. When he was sold, his brother was just a little boy. Now he's a young man. This is some 20-some years later. And he couldn't control his love for his brother. And he hurries out seeking a place to weep. I like what Chuck Swindoll writes about this. He says, all of a sudden, the handsome bronzed leader of millions has rushed to his bedroom and collapses in sobs. All those years passing in review, all the loneliness, all the loss, all the seasons and birthdays and significant occasions without his family. It was too much to contain, like a rushing river pouring into a lake, swelling above the dam. His tears ran, and he heaved with great sobs because he loved so deeply. I'm here to tell you today that Jesus loves you more than Joseph loved Benjamin. He weeps over your waywardness. He waits for your return, looking for you every day. I'm sure in between these two visits of the brothers, Joseph was out there every day. Is today the day they're coming back? I'm here to tell you today that Jesus loves, loves, loves you. I don't know, you may be going through a, a, a personal famine today. Life is tough, not enough spiritual nourishment. Maybe you're just unhappy, guilty. You, you can, in the midst of this famine, you can try and grow your own food. But no rain is coming. And I kind of mean that literally. <laughs> yeah. You're going to have to admit, I can't make this work. I can't fix it. I can't produce my own happiness. I can't change enough situations to be good. You have to leave it all behind and go to where he is. You have to leave Canaan where there is no food and go to Egypt where the master has food. And he has all this food, this, all this grace stored up for you. You can keep trying to produce it yourself, but I'm here to tell you, it will never work. This world is a place of famine. This world is a hard place, a brutal place. And sometimes we modern affluent Americans don't really believe that. You don't have to stay in the famine because of the offer of grace. In Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you've not placed your faith in Jesus, I invite you to take that step right now. 
You simply admit that you need him. You are guilty of sin. And believe and know he is the only way out of that guilt. Believe in Jesus, that he died on a cross for you. He paid the punishment for your sin so that you can know his grace and be completely forgiven, free, and righteous. The righteousness of God exchanged for your sinfulness. And don't just say the words because you don't want to go to hell and you want to get it right. And you, just, you have to believe. You trust in him. You're putting all your eggs in that basket. You're not holding back. You're saying, Jesus, I must have you. I urge you to do that today. Otherwise, you will die in your sin, and you will spend eternity apart from him. You will spend all of eternity apart from everything that is ever good. Don't delay another moment. I believe he's coming soon and the opportunity, the window of opportunity is closing. One, two, three, four. We do hope that you've enjoyed this episode today. If you'd like to learn more about Grace Bible Church in Georgetown, Texas, please visit us at gbcgt.org. Many blessings from our church family to yours.